0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Danny Faith
1: Leonard. I saw a man rub one out on the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> and in the middle of it, he screamed, This would have been better if it was a hand job. <laughs>
0: That and more. But folks, on August 18th, 2021, we'll be having our next Risk live show at Caveat on the Lower East Side in New York City. The show will be at 7 p.m. Eastern. You must show proof of vaccination. It will also be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube. So you get tickets for either the live stream or the in-person show at Caveat at risk-show.com tour. Also, our Halloween episode and our Winter Holidays episode, they're coming up. So send us your scary stories for the Halloween episode. Anything you might have lived through that seemed like a horror movie. Or maybe you know someone with an incredible scary story. Or maybe you just have a memory of something that happened on Halloween one night in your life. And for the Winter Holiday stories anything around Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, that time of year, those are usually on the lighter side, those stories, you can pitch us by going to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now here's the show. Whoa! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Lack of Afro Behind Me Now, and we're calling this week's episode Mixed Results. You know, one of the biggest surprises this summer for us has been that... There's been no slowdown over at thestorystudio.org. It's typical for people to think that, ah, it's summertime. Why should I take a workshop? But I think people have gotten used to the idea of online workshops being so convenient and easy to attend. And there's a phenomenal one coming up on August 7th and 8th with Amy Salloway, a live online group storytelling workshop. You can find everything you need to know at thestorystudio.org. And we do corporate workshops. We do workshops customized for particular businesses. So again, that's at thestorystudio.org. Let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Jen Montooth, a story she shared at one of our live streams when the lockdown was still in effect. But before that, we're going to hear from Danny Faith Leonard. Now, this is a story that Danny shared I think it was in 2019, before there were any lockdowns in effect. And Danny is the host of the show Adult Sex Ed. You can find her on Twitter at Danny F. Leonard. Here she is now, Danny Faith Leonard, with a story we call Like a Virgin.
1: Hello, I'm so excited to be here at Risk. I'm a huge Risk fan. So, I entered high school with perky little boobs and a massive victim complex. So here's some background: I was a very unfortunate-looking child. I uh, I had really bushy hair. I was allergic to everything before food allergies were a cool thing. So I was very, very skinny, and I had a vision problem, and I had to wear an eye patch. Uh, So I looked like a sick Jewish pirate. (laughs) And uh, to make matters worse, I was born with a backwards leg. I had to wear a brace on my leg to correct it. So my superhero origin story is like part Forrest Gump, And part She's All That (laughs) And I hear I think some of you know what this movie is But if you don't know She's All That It is a 90s movie That is very representative Of this classic 90s trope Of a really really pretty girl Who's hidden underneath Terrible grooming But eventually someone takes her glasses off And she gets to dry hump Freddie Prince Jr. (laughs) That's She's All That So by the time I was in high school I was really coming into my own I sprouted some tits The day before my bat mitzvah And I never looked back basically But in 10th grade I caught the wrath Of the meanest of mean girls In many ways, she was just like me. She was driven, she was talented, and she was damaged from her childhood, just like me. We were friends in ninth grade, but over the summer, I had caught the eye of a boy that she liked, and it was on. In our small town, uh, the way that bullying usually worked, at least among girls, is uh, bullying was spreading vicious rumors about people, and these rumors were always very hard to overcome. So I first heard this rumor when I was in chorus class. I had chorus in first period. It was the start of every day. And we took chorus from a man who was a former opera singer, actually. So we were always singing these really strange operatic versions of classic pop songs. Um, So in this class, we were working on a really high part of Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? That would definitely have made Paul Simon want to kill himself. (laughs) And I noticed that everyone was staring at me. I had just gotten my braces off a few weeks before, so I thought maybe it was a good thing. But this this attention went on, and then I knew it couldn't be good. And then finally, someone passed me a note, and the note laid it all out. And it said, the entire school thinks you slept with Mr. Harrison. What? I had never been with a man, let alone one of our teachers. I wouldn't have even known how to look experienced if I tried. I had just found out what a hand job was, because I saw a man rub one out on the Long Island Railroad. (laughs) And in the middle of it, he screamed, this would have been better if it was a hand job. And that's true. I'm sure it would have been better if it were a hand job. And it also would have been better on a more advanced system of transportation like New Jersey Transit or the path. So I received this note and my slutty friend Jessica said, oh, my God, Danny, this is going to be so great. All of the boys are going to want to get with you. And I was like, no, no this is terrible because what if they think that I know what I'm doing? I had only seen one penis before. I had almost recently started masturbating when I saw Devin Sawa walk down the stairs during Casper. (laughs) But that was still pretty recent and I, I just didn't know who I was yet. I didn't know what my body wanted. So I was mortified by this rumor I left the class, I went for a walk around the hallways until a teacher made me return. So I'm not sure what the actual rumor was when it started. It might have just been a tiny comment, but small towns are like a petri dish where information festers and grows. So the rumor that ended up going around town had three parts. It was number one, that I was a slut, number two, that I slept with older men, And number three, the specific part, is that I had slept with a teacher, and not just any teacher, but Mr. Harrison, the attractive black band teacher who looked like Michael B. Jordan and played drums during lunch break. Yes, he was very hot. If I had even known what that was at that point, I was not attracted to real men. My crushes were like four foot 11. (laughs) So, the town that I went to high school in is 35 minutes outside of Manhattan, and it's filled with people who have never been to Manhattan. (laughs) And I'm not going to say outright that it's an ignorant place, but in elementary school, when my mother had sent me to school with foods that were left over from our Passover Seder, one of the other mothers threatened to call the police because matzah is made from the blood of Christian babies. which is not true. Obviously, it's made from the blood of Muslim babies. (laughs) Duh. But anyway, all of that is to say that I never would have fit in and probably neither would have Mr. Harrison. What was great is that what this town lacked in diversity, it made up for in its love of the arts. A really, really strange fact about this town is that there were only 800 kids in my high school and my freshman year Over 400 kids were involved in the marching band. I know that that's very bizarre And the marching band is a nerdy thing in most of the country But in my school it was actually cool It was so cool to be part of the marching band That during football games When it would come to halftime Almost half of the football team would run off the field They would change into their marching band uniforms And then they would come back onto the field Perform with the marching band Leave, put back their football uniforms And obviously lose They sucked laughter There's no way anyone would have let a good team do that. Uh, So I was on the dance team, and we danced with the marching band. We were called the Rockettes, like the Radio City Rockettes. We were nothing like them. We got disqualified from almost every competition we danced in for dirty moves. But anyway, music and performing was my escape. It's also a great social equalizer in a place that you don't fit in in. So it w- that was the only place where I did fit in. So this rumor spread through the town. And as far as I knew, everyone believed it. Students, parents, teachers. The dance team uniform that season was a skin tight full-body black bodysuit that accentuated every curve and that was the last thing that I wanted but unfortunately I had to wear it in front of the entire school at our homecoming performance with the marching band so during my dance solo to it's all about soul because what would a marching band on Long Island be without a Billy Joel tribute Uh, during my dance solo someone screamed out slut and my mom sat on the bleachers, and she overheard some mothers talking about whether or not I might be pregnant. And one of them mentioned an abortion. And we didn't stay for the end of the game. Obviously, they were going to lose anyway. But we didn't stay for the end of the game. I wanted to get out of there. After homecoming, I was overwhelmingly sad. And for several reasons. I I wanted the respect of my peers. I wanted the respect of my teachers. But Most of all, I really wanted good grades because I wanted to get the hell out of that town. And I was afraid that this rumor spreading through the town would affect my grades. Things had escalated very quickly. The rumor was even brought up at a school board meeting. And I wondered how this would be affecting me. And I wondered if this would be affecting my my only ticket out of there. So I thought about all of the things that I can do to dispel this rumor, and of course, the first thing that came up was punching her in the face, which I couldn't do, because that would end up on your permanent record. Now, I don't know about you, but in my childhood, the term permanent record was thrown out at me all the time. Like, don't fuck up, that's gonna be on your permanent record, and I was like, what is this record, who has it, who sees it, where does it go, why is this a threat that keeps coming up over and over again, but I believed it, I believed I. I had a permanent record and it was gonna follow me throughout my entire life. So maybe because I had watched so many 90s movies and maybe because it was kind of all I knew, I figured that I would, I would fight this rumor in the most public way that I knew how and that would be through a performance at the school's talent show. <laughs> my very own musical number. The talent show in the school was actually very competitive. Uh, You had to audition in order to be able to perform. There were only 20 slots and a couple of them would be taken up by weird backyard wrestling. For real, I just watched the whole video back. Uh, And you had to audition and be approved by this faculty advisor. So the faculty advisor uh, who approved the the auditions for the talent show happened to be the most conservative teacher in the school. She looked like Sarah Huckabee Sanders if she dressed like one of the Duggars. (laughs) Somehow she escaped from Arkansas and she ended up in New York and uh, she ended up as a teacher at my school. She was actually the psychology teacher but she was a little bit of a nut job. Her class was an elective, I didn't have to take it, but I was more bored in her class than in any of the other classes. And she, uh, she called up my mom to the school for a parent-teacher conference once, and she told my mom that I gave her agita. And she said to my mom, do you know what agita is? And my mom was like, yeah, I fucking know what agita is. I have a master's. <laughs> also, agita is what terrible teachers get when they have creative students, sorry. Except my mom didn't say that because my mom's an educator herself and she would know that even a thing that a parent says could end up on this mysterious permanent record. I knew it would be an uphill battle for me to get approved to perform in this talent show and I had to stack all of the cards in my favor. Um, So I showed up to my audition and I sang a song from the Broadway musical Oklahoma And she was so excited that I would be bringing such clean-cut entertainment to this school. And on the night of the show, I swapped out the music with the stoner janitor who would be running the soundboard. Everyone had a stoner janitor friend at their school, am I right? I stood with my back facing the audience. And I'm going to move to the side so that way you guys get a clear view of the screen. Uh, so I I stood with my back to the audience, and I only turned around after the first few bars of music started to play. So. Uh, Thank you. So, for people who are listening and not watching, I will explain a little bit of uh, what everyone else just saw. And uh, that is that when the first few bars of Like a Virgin started to play, I turned around to face the audience and I showed them that I was wearing party hats over my tits. Uh, I had made this killer outfit with my mom the week before. Uh, I really wanted to wear Madonna's cone bra for my performance, but we didn't know where to buy one, so we went to Party City and we bought some party hats. (laughs) I had bought a a matching leopard print outfit, so I was basically a party safari. I thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. Uh, Now, a cone bra isn't even accurate because, as some of you probably know, Madonna wore a wedding dress, during Like a Virgin. And this variety show took place in 1999, which is when she was in her like new-agey, beautiful stranger phase. So this is totally inaccurate, but the party hats looked really hilarious on my tiny frame. So uh, as the song went on, when I got to the lyric that says, I've been saving it all for you, that's when the disco ball kicked in. Because I knew how to play. And the crowd went wild. But halfway through the performance, uh, was when I started to touch myself. So, as you can probably see, I, uh, and, and if you're listening, you can't see this, but I, I went pretty easy on them. I just grabbed one boob and then the other, uh, but there's something that you have to look closely to see, and it's in the bottom corner of the screen. It's very small, but it is a man's hand. It's a man's hand that enters the frame and does a little, a little grabbing movement. I don't know if you could see it down there. It kind of looks like, what's the hand from the Adams Family? That's what it kind of looks like. It just like pops right up into the screen. So, so this went on for the rest of the performance. The PTA moms jumped out of their seats. I fucking loved that. And uh, by the end of the performance, the crowd was going crazy. A bunch of the boys had stormed the front of the stage and they were banging on the floor like animals. Some of them were pounding their chest like Matthew McConaughey in Wolf of Wall Street or like Matthew McConaughey in Real Life, I assume. After the performance, I avoided Sarah Huckabee Sanders and I ran out into the hallway. <laughs> and I finally had a moment with myself. My heels were echoing in the hallway. I was all alone, but I felt so triumphant. I didn't know if it would make any bit of difference, but like that climax makeover moment in the 90s movie, I felt so incredibly hot. I went home that night with my parents and I came into school the next day. And I was sitting in first period again in chorus. This time we were working on Toto's Africa, <laughs> but the operatic version. So we were basically right in the middle of like a ho ho, 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 ho when, uh, when the loudspeaker clicked on. And they said, Danny, will you come down to the office? And the entire class was laughing, and so was I, because we were on the same team now. I knew I was getting called into the office that day. I went into the office, I sat across from Principal Clark, really nice man, he didn't seem upset with me at all, because maybe he was a Madonna fan, I have no idea. (laughs) But he seemed fine, and I sat down and he said, look, I, I don't want you to get in trouble here, but unfortunately, one of the PTA moms brought an entire Girl Scout troop and then she had to explain to them what virgins were. And I was thinking like, spoiler alert, it's you, Girl Scouts, for for a really long, long time. But of course I didn't say that. And then he broke the news to me that I would be banned from performing in the show, at least for the next year and that also that I was suspended, which in fact does go on your permanent record. Uh, but I, I didn't care at all. So I took my suspension and shried. I came back to school and not much had changed. I was still the same awkward girl. The next week I was climbing up the stairs to go to class and instead of someone screaming slut, they screamed virgin. <laughs> not ideal either. <laughs> Definitely wasn't my goal. But I felt different because I had taken control of my own narrative. And it really started this pattern that I have continued throughout my life of whenever something is bothering me about my life and I wanna change it, I am willing to take huge risks. And like Madonna's eyebrows, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. (laughs) So I had to put my creativity to rest for a little bit. I had my planned performances with the marching band and in the school plays, but there was no more risque behavior that year until the next year at the variety show when I decided that I would protest censorship, put back the party hats, and sing like a prayer with a small gospel choir and a black Jesus. Thank you. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Somehow I made it through I didn't know how lost I was mm-hmm. Until I found you I was being Incomplete
0: To the virtual stage, Jen Montooth.
3: I am an adult. I am an adult. I am saying this to myself over and over as I'm looking down at my graduate school acceptance letter. I am on the right track, or at least I am on a track. Feels good to be on a track. So up on a board for the first time in so long. I. Finally, will not have to be a barista where the steam milk is constantly burning my hands soon. I won't have to work three or four jobs in college just to pay for college. I am going to be a scholar, a historian, if you will. And then I'm going to get a job in my field. I'm going to have a field and then I'm going to come home at the end of the day after working this cool job in my field. And I'm going to drink a glass of wine. That's right. Out of a glass. Not a plastic LeBron James cup with a hologram if him doing a slam dunk. <laughs> we'll have real cups in my house. For days, I am basking in this excitement and this wonder about what my future is going to look like and what adulthood is going to be like. I'm already 22, but adulthood just feels so wondrous. But in that excitement, I also noticed that I am exhausted and I'm nauseous and my breasts are swollen. When is the last time I had my period? I can't remember so that's a bad sign and this is pre-tracking app so i don't know but it doesn't matter because i'm an adult remember i'm basically a graduate student already i'm just going to go to the grocery store and get a pregnancy test and get this done and i go to the grocery store and i'm like what the hell i'm already here why don't i just go to the bathroom and get a negative on the test go about my day maybe i'll hit up the thrift store afterwards who knows (laughs) So I'm sitting in the Safeway bathroom and I pull out the pregnancy test and I pee on it because that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm looking down at this pink circle that's slowly filling up and I see a horizontal line, negative. And I'm like, oh, thank God, of course, I was not pregnant. I was just anxious and paranoid and I'm just so relieved. But I look back down and now I see a vertical line on top of the horizontal line positive. Now that is great for a GPA, but bad if you do not want to be pregnant. And I was like, what? No, this isn't supposed to happen to me. I am supposed to be a student. I'm not supposed to be a mom. I'm not supposed to balance this all. I'm supposed to be 22. And how could this even happen to me? I hooked up with one person in a whole year and look how it turned out. He was some random guy I met at a party and he wanted me to come over and watch Bad Boys 2 afterwards naive me I thought that's what he wanted to do I was pretty disappointed when that wasn't the case but here we are and I should say that I knew from that moment that I did not want to be pregnant but this was still a time that no one was talking about abortions I'd never met anyone that had had one I mean I didn't even really know what it entailed so the unknown was very terrifying and I just had to kind of sit in this bathroom and panic for a while but For some reason, it is frowned upon to stay in a Safeway bathroom forever. So I had to leave, right? And the bathroom was all the way in the back of the store. And I have to kind of do this walk of shame across the grocery store. And with each step, all of this newly found maturity that I had gained since I got into graduate school and felt like an adult, it was dissipating by the second. So by the time I got to my car, I was just so desperate for reassurance from anyone that I was gonna be okay, because I really didn't know. So I made the rather bold decision to tell everyone I knew that I was pregnant in the span of a few hours, which even if you want to be pregnant is a horrible (laughs) idea. (laughs) But I was just hoping that people would say like, you're gonna be fine, just like do what's best for you. So I get home and I sit on the bathroom floor the bathroom floor just seems like a safe space to give and share bad news right now. Why not? And I call my best friend and I tell her I'm pregnant. And she's like, what are you going to do? You know, I'm like against abortion, right? Mm -hmm. And I hang up because that's obviously not going to help me. Uh, That is not valuable input. And then I drive to my family's house and I think that I'm just going to sit on their couch in the living room and maturely tell them that I'm pregnant. I'm going to figure it out. But Instead, I'm just telling them between sobs, and they say, abortion, no, that doesn't sound like you. You should think about adoption. And they proceed to put their hands on my pregnant stomach, which is honestly the most nauseated I was the entire time I was pregnant. It's very violating and uncomfortable. So eventually, I drive home, and I sit in the driveway, and I decide to call the guy that got me pregnant. I don't know why, maybe to just kick myself while I was already down. But of course he freaked out and he proceeded to call me five minute intervals afterwards. And he was like, hey, uh, Tim again, just making sure you're getting that abortion. Just so you know, it's the only way I'm going to support you. He is a Prince Charming and I think he's single, ladies, if you are interested. (laughs) I don't know why I'm not with him right now. (laughs) And my boss at coffee shop was like, Oh my gosh, Jen, you're gonna be a great mom. Just like work really hard and save up your money, which, first of all, ew, (laughs) no thank you. Who wants to do that? Also, I thought about my situation at the time. You know, I was a barista, I was broke, and I was living with three male roommates who were not exactly frat guys, but they were definitely the type of guys that would like barge in your room on a Tuesday night and they'd be like, take a shot with us, you coward. Like, stop doing your homework. One of them, could only fall asleep at night if he was sleeping on the couch in the living room watching Mad Max at full volume, you know, that classic action movie. I could quote that whole movie to you, and it's not by choice. My bedroom was conveniently placed above the living room, but my housemates' reaction when I told them I was pregnant was to look at each other and go, How's baby? <laughs> Which is no, <laughs> that's not an option either. <laughs> So I thought that I would feel better by telling all these people that I was pregnant, but instead I never felt more alone in my life. It was a horrible decision because of course, none of these people were accepting of my choice. And in fact, none of them knew anyone that had had an abortion either. So I just felt more isolated. And the only way I got through it was Each night, I would sit in my car, I would either drive or just sit there, and I would put in Simon and Garfunkel CD and I would just cry. And as sad as that sounds, it felt really good to cry because I was in shock and I just really wanted that emotion. And that CD is what I used when I was PMS and wanted to cry, so it was like I was training up for this moment my whole life. But there was this one particular lyric in Kathy's song where Paul Simon sings, the only truth I know is you. And that line always got me in between sobs. I was like, you're right, Paul Simon, I only know myself. And it was in that time that I just realized that I knew what I wanted to do. I was just really scared. But just because I was scared, it was still the right choice for me. And I just had to do it alone, as scared as I was. So i probably cried to kathy song a few more times but eventually i took out the simon and garfunkel cd and i put in self-titled genesis album and i went and got that abortion (laughs) and you know as relieved as i was it was also really hard for a while because i had to lie to a lot of people and tell them i had a miscarriage so that they wouldn't judge me And the people that did know I had an abortion still made me feel a lot of guilt and shame for a long time. And I didn't know that I could feel any other way. So I was like, I have to feel shame and guilt because that's what they're telling me I should feel. Hmm. And that lasted about two years. But eventually I realized I didn't have to feel that way. And it kind of changed in one night for me, actually. I had a friend come into town and I just had a feeling that she would be accepting. So I asked her to go for a walk with me at nighttime, basically. So I didn't have to face her. I could just shout it into the night. Like I had an abortion. And she was like, oh, I had two a few years back. My boyfriend was an asshole. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, you're fine. finally, I was like, oh my gosh, she's fine, I'm fine. We both made the decisions that were best for us. I don't have to feel guilty. In fact, I feel great. And it was so healing to have someone normalize this experience for me that it was just a normal part of life to make this decision. And I just really hope that by sharing my story, I can just normalize it for other people. Thank you.
0: is risk. This is Eva Cassidy behind me now, and we just heard from Jen Montooth. Jen runs a women's health storytelling show called Health's Angels. Look them up on Twitter at Health's Angels DC. And before Jen, we heard a cover of Like a Virgin by Caught a Ghost. Well, folks, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, the support of our fans could not be more needed, and... Could not be more appreciated. You know, by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk, you will have access to over 140 bonus stories, our anecdote compilations, over 50 check-ins, interviews with staff and storytellers, our online story studio classes that are in video form, links to video versions of our past live streams, and so much more. So check all of that out at patreon.com risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, Our final story on this week's episode was recorded in 2018 at the Risk Live show at San Francisco Sketch Fest that year. This is one where we thought we'd lost the audio and have recovered it. Dana Gould has such an incredible resume the TV shows and movies and stand-up specials, records that he's produced, just an amazing array, and you can find his podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's called The Dana Gould Hour, and you can find him online at danagould.com. Here he is now with a story we call Very Interesting...
4: much. October 31st, 1977. Jimmy Carter is in the White House. Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life is the number one song in the country for the third week in a row. Star Wars, which premiered in May, is still in the theaters. I am 13 years old, and I am in custody unofficially. Halloween when you're 13 years old can be tricky, no pun intended. Uh, (laughs) Halloween is a much different holiday now than it was back then. Back then it was still very much a kids only affair and and 13 back then was too old to go trick or treating with a straight face. But it was also too young to do anything else. Uh, Nobody could drive. Uh, You were too young to go to a cool party and and try to get laid, or to even seriously think about trying to get laid, or to even fantasize about seriously thinking about trying to get laid. (laughs) Granted, I may be leaning too heavily on my own experiences, but when I was 13 years old, I was about as close to getting laid as the back of my head is to the tip of my nose, measuring from that direction, (laughs) around the earth and back.
2: My plans for Halloween that
4: year, October 31st, 1977, were quite simple. My friends and I were going to go out and, as we would say, do crimes. (laughs) It was not as daring or illegal as it sounds. We lived in a very small town, Hopedale, Massachusetts. And it was the mid-70s, so our options were mercifully very limited. Our version of doing crimes was going out and soaping windows and throwing eggs at cars. Now soaping windows, it sounds pretty tame, but the problem is when you try to wash the windows off, it just keeps making more soap. It's, It's actually an act of acute cruelty. It's like the old George Carlin bit about trying to throw away a garbage can. You really can't do it. Anyway, everything was fine for me until about 3 o'clock that afternoon when I got arrested for shoplifting a bar of soap at our local grocery store. And I tried to explain to them that I was only committing this crime so I could commit another crime later, but they didn't seem to grasp the distinction. But as I said, it was the mid 1970s, and back then, if you lived in a small town and you got shoplifting, stores didn't shit themselves and call the police. Store security held you in custody and called your mother, who didn't work, because no one's mother worked. And she came and got you, and then once you get home, you get the shit beat out of you, usually with a belt or a large wooden spoon, or in my case, with a thing called the board. The board was a a two-and-a-half-foot-long chunk of wood that looked something like a hobbit sword that my mother used to stuff clothes down into the washing machine and whack us across the back of the legs with. She had six kids, all of us animals, and nobody blamed her. Again, it was a different era. There was a saying, spare the rod and spoil the child. Spare the rod and spoil the child was one of those sayings that, although popular, was completely bullshit. A lot like... No means yes, and we've all seen how well that one worked out. But people think, can't be wrong, everybody's doing it. I don't even want to hit my kid, but I don't want him to grow up to be an asshole. Funny side note about the board. If you grow up casually getting hit with a two-foot board, you just assume that everybody else is too. And then you grow up, and you go out into the world, and you forget about it. And then one day, you're in New York, walking down the street with your friend, and it just pops into your head out of the blue. And you say out loud in front of a bunch of strangers, holy shit, the board, that was fucked up. (laughs) To the point that I called my brother, Kevin. And I went, Kevin, remember the board? And my brother went, yeah, I remember the board. What about it? That was really fucked up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Did I ever tell you what happened to the board? No. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she came at me with it when I was about 15, and I just took it out of her hands and said, you looking for this? And that was it. (laughs) But I didn't get hit with the board. Nothing happened. In fact, three hours after being sent home from the store in shame for being a soap thief, I was ready to go out with my friends and do crimes. Because my mother couldn't punish me for shoplifting because my mother is the person who taught me how to shoplift. I would tell you why, but this is neither the time nor the place. Back in the 1970s, there was a very popular televangelist named Oral Roberts. I don't know what kind of person he was, but when he was born, his parents held him up, took one look and said, Oral. Maybe his first name was from now on, note to self. Oral Roberts had his own TV show, and he had Oral Roberts University, and he wanted to build a big Christian hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called the City of Faith, and he was paying for it in the traditional way with other people's money, specifically people with far less money than he had. He had his own helicopter, for Christ's sakes, and I guess I mean that literally. (laughs) So on Thursday nights, my dad would give my mom 100 bucks, and she and I would go to the grocery store, buy about $75 to $80 worth of food, steal about $25 worth, and send the leftover cash to Oral Roberts in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was a great plan unless you don't like stuff that's batshit crazy. (laughs) Now, you might say that teaching a child to shoplift so you could send money to a televangelist who owns his own helicopter may not be considered proper parenting. But it made me who I am today. And I like myself a lot. And God damn it, it's interesting. I am a fan of interesting. I like interesting more than successful. Winston Churchill famously said, success isn't final and failure isn't fatal. To which he should have added, try just being interesting. P.S. Fuck Hitler. (laughs) One of my favorite movies growing up was Beneath the Planet of the Apes. As a story and I say this as a professional writer, beneath the planet of the apes is a goddamn train wreck. (laughs) In a nutshell, astronauts land on Earth of the future, which is now run by intelligent talking apes. So they run away from them and together with their girlfriend who can't talk, but is dressed in a bikini that's made out of bark, stumble across a race of telepathic mutants who live in what used to be New York City. These guys worship a nuclear bomb, and at one point, for no particular reason, they all pull off their faces. And you realize that the whole time, they were wearing rubber masks, and their real faces are bl- veiny, bloody, gory messes. But since they all look like that, it makes you wonder, why the masks? No time. <laughs> By now, the talking apes are fighting them, telepathic mutants. Charlton Heston gets shot in the chest, falls on the bomb's control panel, and blows up the entire world. That's right, that's the end of the movie. The world blows up, and everyone dies. Thanks for coming. As I said, it doesn't work. About ten minutes in, the story jumps off the tracks, finds another set of tracks, jumps off them, crashes into an orphanage, and bursts into flames. But it's interesting. I still remember it. I saw it on TV for the first time in October of 1973. I saw a lot of movies in 1973. I don't remember them. I remember those masks coming off. I watched movies like that all throughout my childhood because no one else in my family liked them. And growing up the fifth child of six in a small, loud, chaotic household with a dog and a two-foot board, the only way to get any kind of attention, I figured, was to just go in the opposite direction. Stand out, be different be interesting. Everybody in my family drank, I've been drunk one time. Everybody in my family who smoked pot or did whatever drugs, I don't do anything. The summer, I was 12 years old. I was pretty much left on my own. Uh, Both my parents weren't really around. I won't bore you with the details. I was given a small allowance to feed myself, but 12-year-olds aren't famous for being budget-savvy. And uh, one week I survived on four cans of chicken noodle soup and a container of apple pie filling. Uh, But I did figure out a way to make a few extra bucks on the side, because the other thing that we were doing that summer was harboring a fugitive. Yeah. One of my brother's friends joined the Marine Corps. And then after a while decided, you know, this isn't for me. So he left. And the Marine Corps said, Hey, where are you going? (laughs) The Marine Corps doesn't like you to just split. The Marine Corps is a lot like Scientology that way. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow, the Marine Corps found out that he was hiding at our house, but the military police couldn't enter our house without a warrant or permission. So every day, I had to deal with my brother. I couldn't leave the house until the MPs came. And then they would ask if our friend was there, which he was, and I stood there, eye level with their guns, saying, no, he's not, and you can't come in. And then I'd get a dollar. (laughs) But more importantly, I developed a contempt for authority that I'm sure over the years has done me much more harm than good. (laughs) Years later, after I had become a comedian, I was summoned to meet with Lorne Michaels to discuss being on Saturday Night Live. That's how it was presented. They like to discuss being on Saturday Night Live. That's like saying, you have a meeting with the president of show business. He's wondering if you want to be rich and famous. Just tell him. (laughs) Well, Lorne had a lot of authority over me In my naivete. I thought he could wave his hand and make me or turn his thumb down and break me. So I was ready to hate Lorne. And I did meet him and found him charming and lovely. And after the meeting, I left wanting to make him a sandwich. (laughs) And he thought the meeting went well. And a week later, I was invited to Chicago with two other young aspiring comedians to audition for Lorne and the casting people. And it was just a a stand-up show. It was me and these two other dudes. And I went on first. And I had the show of my life. I mean, you have to understand, at this point, I had transferred all of my childhood dysfunction into being a non-stop, flawless, hilarity machine. (laughs) When I was off stage, you didn't want to be within 25 miles of me. But on stage, I knew what the fuck I was doing. And I went on and crushed before that was even an expression. The other guys did well, but it was obvious that I got the most laughs. And the next day, we were all flying back to Los Angeles together, and I'm sitting in the three-seat row with these other guys, and I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna get on Saturday Night Live. What the hell am I gonna do? Do I get rid of my apartment? I gotta buy boxes. What the? Oh! What about my car? And I'm looking at these other guys thinking, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, you'll get your time. You'll have your moment. But right now, don't get too close to me because I don't want you burned by the exhaust from the rocket ship that is my career. <laughs> Why didn't I get it? I got the most laughs. I walked on stage, boom, 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 off. Most laughs, funniest, not particularly interesting. It took me a long time to realize that the good stuff happens when the laughter stops. And now I'm so good, I get no laughs at all.
2: <laughs>
4: Years later when I was married, my, uh, my wife at the time was a big show business executive and she flew to New York and did, uh, had a meeting with Chris. And when she came back, she said, uh, honey, you know that story you tell about auditioning for Saturday Night Live? And I go, yeah. She goes, it's true. I like, what are you talking about? She goes, Chris told me the same exact story, like beat for beat. I go, I know it's true. <laughs> Do you think I've been lying at every dinner for ten years? <laughs> if you suddenly lied, I would pull you a... Honey, you weren't in the SEAL team that killed Bin Laden. Judy was talking about making her own drapes. I had to say something. <laughs> Now, you may be interesting, interested in knowing what happened on that faithful Halloween evening of October 31st, 1977. As I said, nothing happened to me. I did show up to do crimes with my friends. <laughs> and as we headed out, our first order of business was to egg Jimmy Callery's brother's Camaro. And as we were making our way across town, a van pulled up next to us and a familiar voice called out, where are you going? It was Father O'Brien, our parish priest. He was a young guy, he was in his early 30s at the time, and we were all altar boys, so we knew him. And no. (laughs) Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. No, Father O'Brien was an exceedingly lovely, profoundly decent human being. I guess you could say he's the exception that proves the rule. And he knew exactly what we were up to. And he said, get in. And we were really not in a position to say no. And he said, at least this way I'll know you won't get run over and killed. So that night, just a couple hours after I got arrested for shoplifting, I drove around town egging cars with a Catholic priest. (laughs) You can't say it's not interesting.
0: that is all for this week's episode folks this is talk talk behind me now and we just heard from dana gould who you can find at dana folks don't forget that on august 18th we'll be having our next risk live show at caveat on the lower east side in new york city show is 7 p.m. You must show proof of vaccination. It'll also be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube, so be sure to get your tickets for either the in-person show or the live stream at risk-show.com slash tour. And have you ever wanted to share an anecdote on the show, one of those super short stories that focus mostly on just one incident now, everything you need to know about pitching us your anecdotes is at risk-show.com anecdotes. My own coaching, my one-on-one storytelling coaching is at kevinallison.com. And I make video messages for people, you know, sending birthday messages or anything like that at cameo.com slash Allison. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. We're at risk show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The risk podcast fans discussion group is on Facebook. Great way to talk about the podcast with fellow fans. And our subreddit is risk podcast folks. Today's the day. Take a risk.
4: particularly interesting.